Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. This week's message continues the sermon series based on I Am a Church Member by Tom S. Rayner. The first three weeks of the sermon series focused on how to be a functioning, unifying, and selfless member of the church. And this week, we move to thinking about one of the most important things the congregation can do for its leader, praying for the preacher. Pastor David Cartwright explains the importance of praying for your preacher, especially for wisdom as he leads the church in a godly direction without selfish pride. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I would ask that you turn in your scripture to the book of 1 Timothy today in chapter 3. We're going to begin reading there, although we're going to look at uh, several different scripture passages along the way. But we'll start here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, reading verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement... If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, in these moments, have your way with us. Help us so that our hearts and minds are opened and attentive to the sound of your voice. Grant the leading of your Holy Spirit that I would speak words of your truth, seasoned with love and grace, spoken in a way that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. May your church be strengthened, may your son be lifted up and given glory this day according to the word that is spoken. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We've been in this series following along in the book by Tom Rayner called I Am a Church Member. And we come today to a message that frankly I did not want to preach. Uh, The reason is that the, the chapter in the book is, is called, I Will Pray for My Pastor. Now, I don't have any problem with you praying for your pastor. But when I agreed to do, and I agreed in my heart, uh, according to the Spirit speaking to me, I agreed that we would do this uh, series, I uh, resolved that we would not skip a chapter along the way. And the reason that I have... Uh, wanted in my spirit to avoid this chapter is because I'm very aware that it sounds self-serving to say what I'm going to say today. 
I hope that you will know that that is the furthest thing from what I would intend to do is to, to say or to do anything that is self-serving. But I think the word that, that the author of the book brings and I think the word that is brought in the scripture is encouraging. And so what I would hope to do in this time really would be to, uh, to encourage you to pray for your pastor, not just me, but for other leaders of your church and other pastors as well, and perhaps to give you a, fruit, a, a few particular ways that you can pray for your pastor along the way. I, I don't intend to kind of exegete this little passage from 1 Timothy, but I did want to read it because this is the passage that the author uses in the book most widely to talk about the pastor and to pray for him. As you read through this uh, text, and I, I agree with all of it, it is the scriptural truth that God brings for us, we can read this as, as the body of Christ and we would say, yes, we can be encouraged, we would agree with it, we could say we want our, our pastors, whether it be an overseer, a, a clergy, a bishop, which is usually the way the word here is translated, um, we would want our, our leader to meet these qualifications. I can share with you that as a pastor of a church, we can read this passage and feel a great weight under it. I'll just go ahead and tell you that it's hard for me to stand here today and bring this message without it feeling very personal. Because it is personal to me. Being a clergy person is what I am called to do. And so to talk about the life of ministry and to talk in, about ways of praying for your clergy is very personal. For someone like me to read this passage in which the apostle lists qualifications for a church leader, it can feel like a great weight upon your shoulder. It can also feel like something in which I look at it and say, I'm not sure I measure up to that. I realize there are very kind people like you sitting in pews and other places who would say, oh, no, you measure up just fine. And if that's your attitude, I, would, I appreciate that very much, but I can tell you from reading it from my perspective, it feels very much like a, a measure that's hard to achieve. It's a very high bar that is set, and I'm going to say a little bit more about that. Being a part of the clergy is an extraordinarily privileged calling to be a minister of the gospel, to be a leader in the church. We understand it to be a very high calling, and it's something that is taken very seriously. Um, and so we do covet the prayers of the people. I've said to you before that, that throughout my years of pastoral ministry, I have felt, in some, sometimes almost in a tangible way, being carried on the prayers of the people. I've had those uh, people of the church who have said to me from time to time, you know, I pray for you every day. And I've truly been able to look them in the eye and say, I know it. I know it beyond any doubt because I can feel the power of the prayers of the people working. And I can tell you that it makes a huge difference when you pray for your pastor. Let me share with you 
three ways that I would recommend you specifically pray for the pastor. If you picked up a church bulletin, they're listed there, and so I just want to give some scripture and some thoughts to go along with it. First of all, pray that your pastor will have wisdom and understanding for the work of ministry. Let me read from you Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul writes to the church, and this is actually, sometimes Paul asks for the church to pray for him in, in a lot of different places. This is one of the spots where Paul says, this is how I'm praying for you. Paul says in Colossians 1, 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prays for the people that they would be filled with a knowledge of God's will and with spiritual understanding. I can tell you that your pastor needs you to pray that consistently. Clergy live in a world that is largely not black and white. There is a huge amount of gray area in the work of a minister of the gospel. In situations where we find ourselves and we have to figure out how we're going to deal with this person or with that family or how we're going to navigate this decision or that decision on the part of the church, so often it is not black and white. Oh, it's just, you know, the answer just falls easily. It does not fall that way so often. We need spiritual wisdom on how to navigate things when the answer is not self-evident. And there are places in the Bible that, uh, you know, wisdom rises to the front, and, and you just go, so, wow, man, that was awesome. Do you remember the story of Solomon after he had taken his uh, kingship? And you remember the one time when he was confronted with two women, each of whom had a baby? And they came to him, these two women each had an infant child, and they lived in the same household. And one of them says that the other woman must have rolled over on her child and killed it during the night. And then she swapped the bodies of the dead one with the live one. And so I woke up with the dead child, but she took my live baby. So Solomon's standing there, two mothers, one live child, both women claiming that that child is, is theirs. You talk, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes, right? Now, his, his response does kind of violate our cultural sensibilities. You know, we kind of cringe and say, oh man, just even suggesting what he did is kind of a gruesome thing. But he, he said, he told his servants, take the baby and divide it and give half the baby to each woman. But the response was, was brilliant because the one woman said, well, that's fine. If, if I can't have it, then none of us can have the baby. And the other woman said, oh, have, heavens no, I mean... It, don't, don't kill the baby, let her, let her have it. And Solomon understood that must be the true mother of the child. Okay, Wisdom on how to navigate a, 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 a situation that was right in front of him. Of course, Solomon didn't always practice wisdom, as quite evident on how he handled or didn't handle all the wives he had. Taking all those wives may not have been the most wise move in the beginning. That's just my humble opinion. Take Paul, for instance. There are a couple of places right at the beginning of Acts chapter 16 where Paul has to implement some wisdom. Okay? The chapter begins by him meeting a young man named Timothy. Remember Timothy? Paul and his traveling companions come to a place called Lystra. They meet Timothy, whose mother was Jewish and father was Greek. And Paul wants Timothy to go traveling with him. Okay? 
Now there's a question. Does Timothy need to be circumcised? Hmm. Well, let's think about this. What's the answer? We know clearly Paul's thought about circumcision. Read Galatians, okay? He cringed at the idea of anything that felt like or smelt like pointing back to being under the law, okay? So his, his attitude towards circumcision was, heavens no, you don't take Greeks and have them circumcised. And we had just come from Acts chapter 15 where the council in Jerusalem had already made that decision. But Paul takes Timothy and has him circumcised. Why? Well, what we're told from the little bit of text is that he understood that they were going to be ministering a lot of lot in, in the presence of a lot of Jewish people, okay? And so Paul made the decision based most primarily on what would be the least hindrance to the gospel going forward, okay? There's no textbook answer to these things, but Paul implements wisdom. And then you go right from there to Paul. They, they leave there. They start traveling on. They try to go to one place, and the Spirit of God prohibits them. They try to go to another place, and the Spirit of God prohibits them. Okay, where are we supposed to go? And that's when he has this vision of a man in Macedonia who says, come over here and help us, okay? You see, the question for Paul and his traveling companions wasn't, where should we go share the gospel? The question for Paul and his traveling companions was, where should we go share the gospel next? It takes wisdom. Okay. Why am I sharing these examples with you? Because the work of clergy feels very often like this. Okay? There's no textbook answer. There's not a black and white. It's trying to navigate in gray areas. We have as a filter system kingdom values. Okay? We take this text called the Bible and we draw out of it the things that are important from God. And then decisions are made based on the, that value system. And it's a case-by-case, case, how does it best fit into what we're trying to accomplish. Add on to that, here we are in the 21st century, and we as a culture are inundated with all these best business practices that flood the market, and we as church leaders are so often encouraged to take these best practices because churches, even though they are an organism, function very much like an organization. And we know how organizations function and so we're told that we ought to take these best business organizational practices and put them into practice. Should we? Yes. Except when we shouldn't. Did that make sense? That's welcome to the world in which I live. Okay? Welcome to the world where clergy live. Do those best practices sometimes work? Yes. Except when they don't go along with biblical practices. Why do we need wisdom? To try to figure out which is which and to navigate all this stuff. Am I asking you for, to, to feel sorry for me and to feel sorry for clergy? Heavens no. All I'm, all I'm trying to do is to just give you a little bit of a snapshot of this wonderful world of pastoral leadership. We need wisdom. And I would encourage you to pray for your pastor to have wisdom in the decisions that need to be made. Pray for your pastor that he will have wisdom and understanding for the work of ministry. Second, pray for your pastor that he will be bold and spirit-enabled to proclaim the gospel. Let me read for you first Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Then we're going to come back to Colossians. You don't have to turn very far in your scripture to get to these. Ephesians 6, 19. 
Paul says, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. He asks for that prayer on his behalf. Colossians 4.3. Paul says, praying at the same time for us as well that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. Paul consistently asks, for the people to pray for him, to make known the gospel with boldness. This is one of the great privileges of being a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You also are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Clergy are given a great privilege to proclaim the gospel. Now we have to remember that the gospel is a life-changing, life-transforming, life-challenging message. It is, a, it is a message that brings comfort. It is a message that brings hope. But it is also a message that gets in our face because it challenges us at the very core of our being to change. And that is where the gospel gets very uncomfortable. That is where the gospel gets very... Um, let's just say the people don't often like it. Okay, We like the comforting part. We like the hope part. But we don't like the part, oh, you mean, you mean I'm not... No, we need, we need to change. Okay, let me draw back the veil a little bit. People in the clergy tend to be wired in certain ways. Now, I'm not painting every clergy with a broad brush, okay? Not all clergy persons are the same, and you will find those who differ from this. Psychological assessments have shown that a vast majority of the people who go into pastoral ministry very often fit into certain traits. There are certain traits that you usually find in them. One of them that you find extremely often is the need to be accepted by other people. We are people-pleasing people. And I will confess to you that I am the same. I am a people pleaser. Can you imagine how far the Apostle Paul would have gotten if he had succumbed to people pleasing? Somehow I don't think Paul was wired that way. He may have been and just overcame it. Clergy are people pleasers. I will tell you that your pastor's wife knows that her husband is a people pleaser. She showed up one day with a book written by Charles Stone called People Pleasing Pastors. And she said, you need to read this. She was right. I did need to read it. You know how books often come with endorsements, whether it's on the inside cover, of, you know, there will be other people who have read the book and, and give endorsements. One of the endorsements of this book I thought was really telling. It comes by a man named Lance Witt, who is himself is an author and ministry leader. And this is what he says about the book. Well, actually, he says about us. He says, quote, Many of us, meaning people in ministry, have been dragging around a ball and chain called people-pleasing. It is our constant companion that accuses us and fills us with regret. And I will tell you that there are a good number of pastors who will say that is exactly right. 
Let me share with you what uh, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. You can turn over from where you are in Colossians very easily. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 4 through the first part of verse 6. Paul says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, for as you know, nor with a pretext of greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others. A pastor reads those words and says, that's what I want to be. That's what I want to be true about me. And then we look in the mirror and we see something else. We see people pleasers. The gospel is a message that is not meant to please people. Please pray for your pastor to be bold enough to speak, to be the gospel, whether he is in the pulpit or in the community or in the church office. And if I could reach back to, next, to last week's message about not letting church being about our own interests and desires, a really bold prayer would be, Lord, let my preacher be bold enough to proclaim the gospel even if it displeases me. Pray for your pastor to proclaim the gospel boldly. People-pleasing is a temptation. There are many temptations. The third thing that I would ask for you is pray that your pastor will not fall into temptation. You may remember what Jesus said to his disciples recorded in Matthew 26, verse 41. They've been out in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before he's going to die. He's asked them to pray. He goes off by himself to pray. He comes back, and what are they doing? Sleeping, okay? And in verse 41 there, Jesus says to them, Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but what? But the flesh is weak. This is true for every one of us. And it is true for your pastors. Your pastors are people. They are just like you. They have temptations just like you. When Paul writes 1 Timothy, he is very much concerned about the welfare and the integrity of the church. Six times in the book of 1 Timothy, you find the word reproach. You know what reproach means, right? To find fault or to be out of favor, to find wrongdoing. And in that passage we read from 1 Timothy 3, Paul says, 
Your pastor should be above reproach. Six times in 1 Timothy and three more times in the book of Titus, the numbers may vary depending on what Bible translation you use because the word, it, it, there can be some variance on what word is used. Nine times in those two little pastoral epistles, Paul uses the word reproach. It's more than the word is used in all the rest of the New Testament combined. Paul is concerned about the integrity, the reputation, the welfare of the local church. And in so doing, he addresses the integrity of the leaders. They should be above reproach. Yes, you should expect that. It's a high bar. Satan understands what can happen to the body of Christ when the body's leaders fall to temptation. And if you've, unless you've lived under a rock for 20 years, you've read the news articles about what happens when a prominent pastor or member of the, a ministry falls to temptation. Satan understands the principle of strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. District superintendents and bishops can give you example after example of congregations who have been deeply impacted when a pastor has fallen to temptation. Those congregations will enter into a period of grieving. They, they, there's a sorting out. There's a how are we going to deal with this. And all of that draws energy and attention away from what the church is supposed to be about, the gospel. Yes, congregations recover. Yes, they should be able to get through that. Yes, they are reconciling bodies. But Satan understands the impact to the body when your church leaders fall to temptation. And we are liable to it as anybody else. Pray for your pastor not to enter into temptation. And friends, one of those temptations, and I would ask you to pray for it, one of those temptations is pride. We, you know, I thought about that line at which we draw, where, where is the line of reproach? If we're supposed to be above reproach, I want to know where the line is that we draw that, okay? Is it just that you don't find your pastor you know, passed out drunk Saturday night on the sidewalk or cheating on his wife or he's run off with tens of thousands of dollars from the church fund? You know, I mean, if we just need to stay above that, that's, that's manageable, even though sometimes we still don't. Where is the line of reproach? Pride is, is a horrible thing in the life of a pastor, and it is so easy. I mean, that's why Paul said there in verse 6 that the, 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 your pastor shouldn't be a new convert lest he f become conceited and fall into the, the devil's trap. We, we had an event here probably a couple of years ago. It was a men's event in which we were simulcasting something that was being broadcast in another location. I, I don't remember... Uh, the, the, the speaker, I don't remember the pastor, I don't remember the church, and which is probably best because 
the last thing I would ever want to do is, really, is, is be critical of any pastor or any congregation. But I remember so well one of the things that happened is we were watching this simulcast. Of course, it started with worship. They had a band there. The crowd was huge, and they were really getting into the, into the worship. And then they brought the pastor of the church onto the stage. And when the pastor of the church walked onto the stage, all the men into the place broke out in this robust applause. And it was not the kind of applause of, you know, a, a kind of gratuitous, yeah, you know, he's our speaker, he's a leader, we want to, you know, you know, welcome you to the stage. It was, it was the kind of applause that you, would, that you would see at a concert given to a rock star or someone of that magnitude. And the thing that went through my spirit when I, when I watched that was, I mean, it just, it went to the core of my being. And some of the other guys who were with me, you know, we kind of joked about it. It became a laughing point for a little bit. Oh, we're going to catch you in worship, and we're going to clap when you come on. And I'm like, <laughs> don't. Please. I mean, I mean, I can take a joke as much as anybody, but you understand the way that we are wired. How easy it is to, to let the... Uh, accolades and the approval of people define you. Pride will bring somebody down as fast as anything. And it is probably more subtle than anything. Pray that your pastor does not enter into temptation. And you have my permission to specifically mention pride. Please. Clergy are just like everybody else. I had a conversation with a man years and years ago. I, was, I hadn't been serving a church too awful long. I've thought about this from time to time, and uh, I'm pretty resolved that if I had the conversation to do over again, I would say exactly what I said to him that day. I don't remember exactly what got the conversation started, but in the midst of it, he said to me, and may have been part of how he said it, that pastors are held to a higher calling. I said, you know what? Pastors are held to a higher calling. He may have said standard, high, a higher standard. I said, you know what? You're right. Pastors are held to a higher standard. But I'm not held to a higher standard because I'm a pastor. I'm held to a higher standard because I'm a Christian. And that high standard applies to you just like it does to me. So be careful about applying standards to your pastor that you don't apply to yourself as well. I'm not being critical of you all. Please, I mean, don't sit there and take it like I mean that personally. Okay, because I don't. The pastors, we're, we're, we're trying to follow this pathway of Jesus just like you are. And sometimes we fail. And you read these scriptures like 1 Timothy, and you, know, you read things like, you know, should be able to manage his household well. And you've never heard that, that pastor's kids are, are misbehaved, right? 
No one has ever heard that. Why do we think pastors' kids misbehave? Well, sometimes they do. But it's not like the rest of y'all kids don't. Except Timothy. Timothy's, he's got it mastered. All I'm trying to say to you is, we're, we're just trying to live this life just like everybody else. And we understand what a high calling it is. I've been blessed where I've been that I've served congregations who have been extremely kind, extremely supportive, extremely prayerful. I hear horror stories from other pastors, and all I can do is pray and give thanks to God that I haven't had to experience what they have. Your pastor needs prayer. And I would extend that beyond your pastor because you have other members who represent this congregation as well as do other churches. You have church secretaries, you have youth pastors, you have other staff people who are put in positions where they represent who this congregation is as a body of Christ. And they need prayers just like your clergy do to lift them up so that they may be faithful in representing the body of Christ just like you want your pastor to be. Would you pray for your pastor? Your pastor definitely appreciates it. Let's pray. God, I thank you now for praying people. I thank you for those who uh, have a clear understanding of the nature of your body. And I thank you, God, for the very high and privileged calling of being somebody called a pastor. Father, I know that I fail so often, and yet you restore. We all want to be faithful, God. So I pray, I pray now for the leaders of your church. I pray for bishops. I pray for fellow clergy. I pray for other staff people who represent their congregations and do it as faithfully as any clergy do. I pray that you would strengthen them in their work. I pray that you would make them bold so that the gospel flows through them and changes the lives of those around them. I pray that you would protect their families because we know that the evil one is always afoot trying to undermine them. And I pray that you would make us one in heart, one in spirit, even though we may not be of one mind about certain issues. Father, may we always represent your church well. May we serve you well, that your body be strengthened, and Jesus be given praise. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.